0: Welcome to Medicus, a student run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Medicus. My name is Emily, and I am joined here today by Erin from the Medicus team. Hi, everyone. Today, we have a very high yield episode with our special guest, the master of high yield information, Dr. Hussein Sitar, the creator and author of Pathoma. In addition to teaching medical students high yield USMLE Step 1 content, Dr. Sitar is an associate professor of pathology at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine and a practicing surgical pathologist. He has also been involved in teaching medical students for several years. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Sitar. It's
1: my pleasure. I'm happy to be able to share some time this morning.
2: Well, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about yourself other than that short intro? We'd love to hear a bit about how you decided to pursue a career in medicine and possibly pathology specifically.
1: Sure, of course. So I think if I had to trace my history of medicine back, I would actually uh, go all the way back to high school. So, uh, in fact, maybe even eighth grade in eighth grade, there was a uh, the typical uh, science fair that your junior high might hold. And um, I got extremely excited about the science fair. And uh, particularly the science project began to work on a science project and eventually took that science project down to state in eighth grade. So that's where my interest in science sort of evolved. Uh, In high school, that continued, and believe it or not, as early as sophomore year of high school, I was learning how to clone, sequence, and um, digest DNA. And in particular, I went to a summer camp for uh, recombinant DNA techniques in California at the University of the Pacific. And there, I took a two-month course, which eventually led me into molecular biology, and returned from that basically as a junior in high school, and then began working in a lab where I, near where I grew up, which was Northwestern University. Uh, so I spent after school and summers in the lab, and eventually that kind of piqued my interest in uh, in biology. So that that led me to uh, to sort of college. Interestingly, the the mentor of the lab that I worked at, that was uh, Dr. Richard Morimoto, who's still a very well known scientist. He had done some of his research and uh, initial training at the University of Chicago. So he inspired me to go to the University of Chicago and that's where I ended up for undergrad. So at the university, I continued my research career. And um, of course I was an undergrad, so there was a limited amount that I could do, but I continued and eventually ended up in the lab of Dr. Jeffrey Bluestone, who's also a very famous immunologist now at UCSF. Um, And in that lab, there happened to be a lot of MSTPs who were also doing MDs. So eventually my research interests kind of slowly began to switch towards medicine, and, and that's it. that's how I ended up in med school. So that, that was my, my path to medicine. Uh, to be honest with you, it was a really late change that I made because I really entered the University of Chicago thinking I was gonna do a PhD. And I was really on the PhD track until junior year, uh, junior year where I began to think maybe medicine would be a way that I could sort of bridge my interest And eventually that's what led me to med school. So it was kind of a late decision, but I think hopefully the right decision.
2: For some of our students and listeners who might be interested in considering on the fence, you've had multiple changes. I know we've, from our research, known that you were deciding between PEDS and pathology. So what has made you decide to take the path that you've taken, whether that be between PhD and MD or between going into specializing in PEDS versus pathology?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, the, the, the path is a little more complicated than that. So now that you know my background a little bit, I'll just say that when I entered med school, it was just really, really difficult two years. And the reason is because as a sort of on that PhD track and working in labs, you you get a ton of time to be able to think and digest um, as you're going through and learning information and, and studying whatever work you're doing. Whereas in med school, it was like there's very little time and they start you on day one you're drinking from a fire hydrant and it was just totally not what I was used to. So you could think of it as for me, it was like the ultimate torture <laughs> and the final step of that torture was called pathology because it was the last course that we took at the end of second year. Um, and uh, it was for me, the worst part of all of medical school. I, I mean, if you would have asked me at the end of second year, if I would ever think about a career in pathology, I, there was no way it was not even on the differential at the end of second year. I, I pretty much, you know, had, had resolved that. I was going to go into, uh, into heme, he, monk. that was, or sorry, internal medicine. And then eventually into he monk. that was where I was, where I was headed. It, I thought it was a nice way to combine both my desire to do clinical work along with my research background. And essentially once I completed second year, I went through third year, third year, further let's say solidified that notion that I should go into internal medicine. And I then at the end, at the end of third year, obviously entered into fourth year. And I did my sub eyes. I had my letters. I was all set. I was going to apply for internal medicine. The, at about that time, I also began to start thinking about more seriously, well, more seriously thinking about taking some time away. Now I didn't just wake up one day and say, Hey, I'm going to like disappear. Although part of me wanted to, I think at the end of second year, but um, I, I had been thinking for a while that I wanted to just reset. I had some other interests. Um, I wanted to take time away. I wanted to just process where I was, what I was doing, what direction I was going to head in. And this kind of was just pulling at me over that end of second year, beginning a third year, most of third year time time timeframe. So at the end of third year, I obviously did my sub eyes and internal medicine, had my everything all set. My mentor was all set. And then I just basically decided to pull the trigger. I started realizing that there was no other time that I was going to be able to just reset. And this was just the right time to do it. Now, I mean, this is a little while ago. So, you know, we're talking 20 years ago, roughly. So it wasn't like, you know, it was that we were in the old days of medicine. I know medicine's constantly evolving, mm-hmm. but we were in the old days of medicine where you just don't do those kind of things. Like. You're supposed to follow the path that everybody's already followed. You're not supposed to deviate from that. So, as I began to seek advice and talk to others, like there was no one that thought it was a good idea to just take time away. But I knew inside I needed to do it, but just no one thought that this was the right thing to do. I had a couple of people who, you know, thought maybe they could kind of see my perspective, but for the most part, I was kind of alone. And eventually I just realized that I had to do it. There was just no way around it. So, so that was really the first phase. I internal medicine, all set to go into internal medicine, eventually do HEMONC. And um, and then eventually I pulled this trigger. I kind of pulled a parachute and just decided that I was going to take time away. So I applied for uh for three years off. Uh, actually, actually applied for two years off and ended up becoming three years off. And I did nothing medical. I traveled the world, and we could perhaps get into that a little bit later.
2: We definitely but, um, will
1: yeah (laughs) i i eventually took that time away and that gave me some time to reset and to do other things and to sort of rethink through where i was headed and what my goals were so when i returned particularly having spent time abroad um i i decided i wanted to do pediatrics and my new focus was going to be international medicine so that was the that was the next change Now, mind you, I had been away from medicine for close to three years. And so I hadn't done anything medical in that time. So there are only two ways to do it. Either you could slowly jump in, but I only got about six months left. I'm off cycle. Or you just kind of rip the bandaid off. So I jumped in and I did three, I think three PED sub-I's in a row. And um, sub-I one, sub-I two, sub-I three. By the end of sub-I three, I was all set. And um, everyone was kind of you know, supporting me to go into PEDS. And I I basically, you know, not, not on paper, but I kind of had the hints that I would have a spot at the University of Chicago if I was interested. Uh, And essentially, I just thought I would go into PEDS and I would stay at the University of Chicago. And then we would sort of build a career in internal, sorry, international medicine from there. So that was the that was the Pete's part of, your uh, of your STEM. Sorry. I'm taking this into all these convoluted directions, but that was no the peds part of your STEM. I, got, I should be a little more high yield, I guess. So, okay. So let's go to the next phase, which is essentially now what happens uh, on the very last day of my third peed sub I, I can't remember if it was two or three, I think it was three, but anyway, on the very last day of my final pizza, there was this patient that had a platelet count, a very, very high platelet count. And, the attending said, why don't you go and review the slide in the Empath Lab? So I I went down to the lab and when I got to the lab, uh, I asked if I could review the slide with one of the pathologists. And I sat down and they pulled out the slide and they spent like a good half hour just walking me through the slide and how you interpret the slide and how you think about all the findings on the slide and how you piece it together with the clinical circumstances. And um, as I began to sit there, I can't say that I thought I should go into pathology, but I just kind of saw pathology in a very different way. It it was like, wow, you know, that that little researcher in me kind of got shaken. And I started thinking, hey, this is interesting. The way they kind of looked, looked at the slide and took the data and then were able to like walk backwards towards the clinical circumstance of the patient. But anyway, I didn't put much into it. It was a half hour interaction. I kind of left that and maybe it was just the first seed uh, that was planted in my mind, but I actually do still remember that interaction till this day. So the next thing that happened, and this is gonna sound really crazy, but I I was all set for pediatrics. And then an email came across maybe a few weeks later from one of the national pathology organizations. And essentially what they said was that any medical student that would be willing to do a pathology rotation would get a $1,000 stipend if they applied through them. And the reason was because so few people were going into pathology at that time, this was early 2000s, that um, they were trying to attract people to at least understand what pathology is about and perhaps that might interest them. So uh, they offered a thousand dollar stipend for anyone who would be willing to to go into this rotation. And I signed up and truth be told, it was really for the thousand dollars and not necessarily for The opportunity in pathology. I probably shouldn't be saying all these things about pathology. a pathology, but um, anyway, that's the background. And the um, the the rotation was uh, interestingly it was at a what was called like a hybrid practice where it's part private, part part academic. And uh, eventually, I obviously ended up at this rotation. And when I when I ended up there, I began to rotate. And interestingly, they hooked me up with a uh, with a pediatrician who had become a pathologist. Now they didn't know I was going into pediatrics, but it just so happened that this, this person that I was rotating with was a pediatrician who eventually switched to pathology and actually had been become done pathology residency, become an attending at Hopkins, spent some time at Hopkins and eventually had come back to practice here. So, uh, I did the rotation and by the very, very end of the rotation, I was like, you know, this is something I could really do. And actually, I kind of enjoyed it because it was a little slower than what I was used to. And it did allow me to to digest and think and process and avoid the, the noisy pager and the busy paperwork. And sometimes uh, the convoluted histories that tend to arise when you're trying to, you know, trying to search out exactly what's going on clinically. So um, by the end, I was kind of thinking, this is something I really could do. And maybe I would probably possibly enjoy it more than peds. And obviously at that point, I eventually switched, but that's what got me into pathology. So it was a very kind of <laughs> non-linear journey, but eventually uh, I, I think, I hope I, I, made the, I made the right decision.
2: I think it's it's an amazing story for a lot of students who are possibly on that fence right now who are deciding between specialties understand that it's never too late to find what you love to do.
1: Yeah. And I would add that, uh, you know, one of the things about pathology in particular is like, it's so contrary to what you, what your intent was when you enter med school, meaning when someone enters med school, you're really thinking about patients. That, that's what, that's what what brings you into medicine. You're really thinking about service. You're thinking about patients. You're thinking about being able to interact with patients and do good for your patients. And here all of a sudden you're making this decision to go into something where you may not necessarily be forward face in front of the patient. So that becomes a a bit of a difficulty. And I, I appreciate that. But the reality is, is that the contributions that the pathologist is making behind the scenes is is, is, is really foundational to the to the entire hospital i mean how is anyone going to benefit benefit a patient without knowing what the labs are or knowing what the diagnosis is or for a surgeon knowing whether their margins are clear or not so you know we're we're guiding the hands of the surgeons and the minds of the of the front place front front facing clinicians and so you just need to be able to digest that you're not going to necessarily get the direct credit you're not going to be you know, directly in front of the patient, but you're making just as much of a contribution as anyone else. And it takes a little bit to digest that. And I think part of my being away just gave me the ability to see that a little more clearly. And maybe, maybe just that maturation process that occurs with time where you, you kind of realize that you don't necessarily need to be, you know, at the front to, to be able to, to make a contribution. And uh, that's something that I also came to appreciate. So I think you know, although it's a very convoluted story, everything had to fit in at the appropriate place for you to be able to to get to where you get to. And so, you know, sometimes I maybe I would just add that it's it's good to always consider opportunities as they arise.
0: Yeah, I think that's wonderful advice um, for medical students in general, regardless of what specialties they're interested in. I guess on that note, um, I'm wondering what advice do you have for medical students who like are, yeah, unsure of their specialty, unsure of, you know, the direction they want to take in medicine, unsure about, you know, their calling, like, what 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 might you say to a student in that position?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a common common concern that many of us have. And by the way, it doesn't only arise at this phase where you're trying to make a decision about which career, but it actually arises throughout your career, because mm-hmm. you're always going to be asking the question, like, really, what's the underlying intent when when you enter into medicine, it's really service. And so you always ask the question, what's the best way in which I can serve? And people make adjustments all the time. You have people in medicine go into other things. You have people in medicine do different things and, and all of it's with that intent, ideally. So I would say that that's a, you know, global question. Well, the first thing is you should ask the question, right? It's important to anyone who assumes that they know what they want to do from the age of two and, and thinks that that that's, that's the only thing out there is probably missing a lot of opportunity. So I would say, you know, the first step is to ask the question. And then, and then the second step is to be, is to recognize who you are, because I know everyone has an opinion about what you should do, but that's their opinion, speaking from their own perspective. It's not necessarily you you know uh, when someone gives advice uh, there's two types of advice there's one type of advice is the advice that you get from someone telling you what they would do but they're not you and another type of advice is where someone puts themselves in your shoes and then tries to give you advice for you it's much harder to find that latter type of advice because how many people have the wisdom to be able to step out of their own shoes step into your shoes try to see things from your perspective and then advise you So a lot of times when we get advice, people are telling us what they would do based on who they are, which is wonderful, but it doesn't necessarily apply to me. So um, I think it's important to recognize who we are, where our strengths lie, where our weaknesses are, what we're really able to do over long periods of time, because medicine is not a race. It's a marathon. Uh, You're going to have to be doing this over a long period of time. So what do you enjoy? Who are you? What's your personality? Where are your strengths? Where are your weaknesses? How can you best contribute? All of these things have to come into play and that takes time. And it's amazing that in the middle of third year, uh, the chaos and stress of running through third year, you're supposed to make this amazing, humongous decision, which is going to be living with you for really the rest of your life. And and you just wonder, you know, is that, is there an appropriate space given for for such a big decision? But I I usually just advise people to, to think about themselves, who they are, always know that there's no such thing as one path. There's no such thing as no turning back. Um, You could literally do something for five years and then change. You could do something for 10 years and change. You could do it for a year and change. So uh, we shouldn't ever feel bound by any one step that we make. And we should feel confident enough to know that uh, the the system in which we exist, uh, one of the benefits of the system in which we exist is that it has tremendous flexibility and does allow people to um, to go back and 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 retrace their steps whenever they think that they may not have necessarily made, quote unquote, the best decision. But in the end, I mean, let's just be real. When we're choosing between specialties, it's really like, what ice cream do you want? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all good. It's an amazing opportunity to have gotten this far for, for a medical student to have gotten this far. I mean, just think about where you came from and how far you got and all the things that had to go right in order for you to be able to achieve what you've achieved and i mean you know i'm a parent so i know how hard it is to to get anyone to any position that you're hoping to to get them to you know parent teacher mentor they all they all know how hard it is to to move people along from point a to point b So the fact that any med student is even just having the opportunity to think like, Hey, what am I going to go into pat yourself on the back right there? Because that's a really, really, it's a, it's actually, uh, an, it's a, it's a celebration in the sense that you're choosing vanilla, strawberry, chocolate. They're all going to be good. You're all going to get, you're going to get an opportunity to, to serve so long as you don't damage yourself in the process. Meaning damage yourself means you can't choose something that's going to stress you out or harm you in a way that'll break you so that you can't continue to serve. That's what I mean by damage yourself.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for that wonderful advice. And as a current third-year medical student and also a big fan of ice cream, I really appreciate your words of wisdom about making these decisions in medicine. So thank you. So now we would love to switch gears and talk to you a bit about your name to fame, Pathoma. We would love to hear about how and when you first decided to embark on writing Pathoma.
1: Sure. So, all right, you you heard a little bit about the background, by the way, all these pieces kind of fit together in Pathoma. So eventually I ended up in pathology. um, And when I ended up in pathology, part of the way by which I could prepare myself was to now go back and TA the pathology course. So because I was switching from pediatrics to pathology and I hadn't really had much exposure to pathology, honestly, I had never even done, well, I did that rotation that I told you about, but I had never done an intense rotation in pathology. Um, I needed to now rebuild my skills in preparation for residency. So I thought the next best step would be to take on the role of being a TA for the uh, clinical pathophysiology class that was part of the Pritzker School of Medicine, which is, I went to med school at the University of Chicago, which is the same place I did undergrad. Mm -hmm. So as part of that process, I I became a TA. And as a TA, it was extremely eye-opening for me because now I was sitting without having to worry about grades and tests. And I'm participating in the class from a whole nother dimension. So two things are different. Number one, I've been away for a long time. So I really forgot most of what I was hearing, but number two, I get the opportunity to learn it without taking any other class at the same time. And also I don't have to worry about tests and exams. And I pretty much have a spot for residency. So none of these things are like, I'm not worried about step one. I'm not worried about residency, not worried about what I'm going to be. And so I get this sort of like relaxed opportunity to, to engage with the course again. And even, and, and by the way, I'd had had all the material once. So I did, you know, I did have that, sort of underpinning within me somewhere. So eventually I, I became involved with the course and sitting there, I just began to realize like, Oh my God, this is so much material. Like there's no way that the med students sitting here are able to digest all of this. This is just that same drinking from a fire hydrant story. And um, so I quietly observed, observed what was going on and I became more engaged with the students and began to interact with them and, and, um, and just was, thinking like, wow, there's just so much here. And and also began to just recognize as I was sitting there that like somebody would come in and give a lecture and often it would be a lecture that was not specifically relevant to the med students. For example, if a PhD comes in and gives a lecture, it's a really basic sciencey lecture Whereas some of that basic science is not relevant to the practice of medicine. Now, of course, uh, the practice of medicine is underpinned on basic science. So I'm not taking anything away from that, but at a second year medical student level. And then you got the opposite extreme where you've got this like world renowned clinician who comes in and starts talking about the stuff they've been practicing for 30 years. And these medical students have not even heard about the disease to begin with, let alone how you're supposed to handle the disorders with 30 years of experience. So um, anyway, I began to just note these things. I didn't say much. It just just began to see it in a different way. So that was my second round. So first round was I took the class as a student. And then the second round was I was a TA. Eventually, I entered residency. When I entered residency, um, there was a, a little bit of an interesting thing that occurred in which our head of the course, who had literally been teaching, leading this uh, clinical pathophysiology course for over 20 years, decided to retire. So when they decided to retire, um, they appointed a new head of the course. And I was a resident at that time in the program. And they basically said, well, we got this new person who's going to lead this course, but they've never really experienced the course. So we need uh, like a, a transition person who has some experience with the course to be involved as well. So they gave me an opportunity as a resident to be, quote, unquote, a resident TA, which basically just meant that I would take my elective time as a resident and I would be engaged with the course. But I would be more than just a typical TA. Instead, I would be more like a in-between faculty and TA. So now I got a third chance to run through this. It's about five month, six month course. And I'm seeing this all over again right? From another perspective. Now, this is the third time. So instead, let's say the first time it was like drinking from a fire hydrant. The second time it was like drinking from a fire hose. The third time it was now I'm drinking from still a fast running hose. It's a big bucket. I can't digest much of what's there. And still the medical students are supposed to be doing this, you know, with, with perfection. So anyway, this gave me this third round of exposure to the course and, um, it it, uh, during this time this time i actually did a lot of review sessions with the students i would do what i would call pre and pre pre and post so before the week began i would do a pre a preview to the week um, in which i would sort of try to summarize everything we were going to learn over the week in an hour and then when the when the week was over i would do a post in which i would try to compress everything that they heard again in an hour so i would do these pre and post lectures students really enjoyed it. I got an opportunity to be able to engage with the students and think about mechanisms of teaching. Finally, what ended up happening was that I, um, I eventually then began to interact with the students more and more until it, one day, and this was really like the last year of my residency, uh, one day I was sitting with the, um, with the med students and we were talking about leukemias and lymphomas and one of the students said, you know, I really don't understand the difference between a leukemia and a lymphoma. So I started talking and I was like, well, you know, OMA means mass. And so, you know, it means that you've got a mass of neoplastic lymphocytes and emia means in the blood. And so you've got this, you know, neoplastic proliferation floating around in the blood and an emia can have an OMA phase, meaning a leukemia can have a lymphoma phase and a lymphoma can have a leukemic phase. So I started walking through all this and, when the light bulbs went off, I real I, I said, wait a minute, how come you didn't know this? Like we've been doing this for a while now. You didn't put this simple piece together. And they're like, no, no, no. I, I know all the little details and I memorized all the facts, but I don't have the big picture. So I took a step back and I said, okay, let's just delete this conversation and start over. Just tell me what's a carcinoma. And, you know, they started saying swim cell carcinoma, papillary carcinoma, Uh, adenocarcinoma, but they couldn't tell me what was like just inherently a carcinoma, that it was a malignant proliferation of epithelial cells, which is classically defined by the presence of keratin as an intermediate filament. So as I began to interact with the students, I realized that we were missing some big picture points. And I began to walk away from that interaction. Literally, I walked away from that interaction. I went to my desk and I said, you know, this is crazy. Like we're sitting here and spending months and months and months teaching, and they've got all these little details, which may or may not even be true in the end or relevant, because you know, there's a lot that changes in science when you talk about details. But they're missing the big picture. And every single every single book, medical book, is like constantly expanding in size. And how come someone doesn't just write a very simple big picture book? And um, and that basically. I, I sat there, I was on my computer. I remember this day, it was June, 2006. I uh, went on yahoo.com, which was a <laughs> kind of common site to find domain names at that time. And I typed in pathoma.com and it was available. And I said, that's it. I'm gonna make up, People they don't understand carcinoma, lymphoma, melanoma. I'm gonna make up pathoma that's going to explain it all. So that was 2006. Now it took a little bit of time and there's a little bit of de- deviations that occurred along the way, but, um, but that was the inception. That was how the idea came about.
2: So since then, Pathoma has sort of become a Bible for medical students across the country who are going through the fire hydrant drinking process of pathology. When you started Pathoma, did you feel or expect the success that the book and the program has actually received to this point?
1: Oh, no, not at all. I was, well, so 2006, I envisioned it. Now, the next thing that happened was uh, I eventually got a faculty position at the University of Chicago. And once I got a faculty position, honestly, I got involved in so many other things that medical education was like the last thing on my list. Actually, I had a research background. I t- t- took a faculty position. We recently had received a spor grant from the NIH, which is a specialized program of research excellence excellence grant. And my specialty is breast pathology. By the way, that's what I do. I'm a full-time surgical breast pathologist. So uh, because the spore was in breast, this was now going to be my new responsibility. So 2006 to 2009, all I was doing was establishing myself as a clinician and also establishing myself as part of this member of this broader spore group at the University of Chicago. So I really couldn't do anything with, uh, with pathoma at that time. It was just kind of this itch that was growing in me, but I just couldn't do anything about it. 2009, some changes occurred in which I, again, had, was forced to return back to the course. You know, so there was just um, some, some changes that occurred at the higher level in the department of pathology, which then required me to again, be involved with the course. This time I got involved with the course again. And uh, when I got, when I ran the course, this I don't know, what is the third or fourth time now? I was hundred percent convinced that there just needed to, there could be a better way that, and not to say that medical students are kindergartners, but in the end in medical, in from from a medical knowledge perspective they're like kindergartners right it's your first exposure and i was just convinced that we weren't building those foundations that you need to build in kindergarten that would eventually allow you to be able to thrive throughout medical school now let I me mean, look the reality is medical students are all brilliant so you can't really mess it up uh meaning if there was no one even teaching you, if the if the teaching was all random and not done in any appropriate way, you would probably all figure it out over time anyway. But I just thought we could make things a little more efficient, so that was really the idea. So in 2009, well, that's 2009. 2009, I embarked on basically like my my first test, which basically was to create a mini version, and then to run it against students to see how they responded. And I made, again, it's a really long story there, but eventually I was able to offer uh, an elective at the university uh, to the students, which, which basically just allowed me to test my teaching style. And my teaching style was, now this wasn't Pathoma per se, but my teaching style was, I will teach you off the top of my head with no PowerPoints. And if I'm able to explain it to you without a PowerPoint, then you probably need to know it. And if I'm not able to, then you could look it up another day. So that was kind of the idea. And I created this course. It was an independent elective course and um, many students took it and got really positive feedback from that. And then that kind of took me down the path of eventually developing the materials. So the materials I began to develop in 2010, 2010, I think summer of 2010. And mind you, I was doing this while I was a full-time surgical pathologist and full-time everything. This was just on the side, nights and weekends, um, literally had to hire someone to, uh, to like literally drive me here and there so that I could sleep in the car. And eventually, eventually the materials came out in 2011. Now, this was such a burning passion inside of me from 2010 to 2011 and, and the need to get it done quickly because it was just, I need to get this out and off and get this off my head, like off my shoulders, that um, I was totally oblivious to everything that was gonna come downstream. Meaning I wasn't even thinking about how many people would use it, who would use it, how would they know about it? How would it get out to the world? None of that was on my mind. I just had this severe itch to just get this out of me. Like I knew what I wanted to do. I, I mean, so much so I just wrote this off the top of my head. You know, I literally just sat down at a computer and just started spewing out this material. I was not like carefully trying to put the pieces together, facing writer's block, none of that. I just from A to Z was just putting this stuff down on paper. It was really just my conversation with the world that I was dying to have that I had been holding in for for so long. Anyway, in 2011, the materials came out, and I was then sort of struck. now 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 the reality hit me like I was stuck. Like, how do you get this out to the world? But that that's essentially how it came how I started. Now, How it got out to the world that's a whole other story. But I started that way, which is that. I just wanted to produce the materials I was not at all thinking about how the world would get it or or if even they would use it to be honest with you.
0: So Dr. Sitar, you mentioned that you know you were working as a full-time surgical pathologist while also writing Pathoma, which is certainly no small feat. So can you tell us a bit more about how you were able to go about writing pathoma while also working full time and Um, not giving up anything else, you know, that you were committed to at this time.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I I didn't have the option of giving anything else up. I honestly, I didn't even think about it because uh, I am a full-time surgical pathologist. I'm working at the university. I'm establishing my career. Uh, I have a family that depends on me. I, I can't drag them back into residency. You know, like I, we can't be living like a resident. We've already gotten to this point. So, I didn't have that option. It didn't even occur to me to, to try to say, Hey, you know, I just need to do this. And it wasn't it wasn't out there as a, as a choice. So I just made the best of it. I um, would literally just write on nights, write on weekends, of course, really, honestly, I had an extremely supportive wife and family. There's no way that was going to happen without that. Everybody gave me the space that was needed. And for me, the the key way to work this out was to do it as quickly as possible so that I wasn't interfering with the other things that I was doing over an extended period of time. So it really drove me to, to to maximize on on every single moment throughout that period. Like I said, it was written in nine months. Now, mind you, the other thing here is that I had been doing this for a decade, right? I had been teaching consistently. So it's not like you just wake up one day and say, Hey, I'm going to write something. Uh, You got to have experience and you've got to have sort of walked through many different trials and errors and, successes and failures before you eventually learn how to do it. I've had some circumstances where I've taught and the whole class would say to me this was the most amazing thing you've done. And I've actually had some circumstances where I've taught and everybody said this was horrible. <gasps> and each one of those is a learning opportunity. I when I when I read my reviews like historically because I've taught all over the world for many different organizations. And so when I read the reviews, I never read the good ones. I like to read the ones that are critical mm. and, and see what they say, because that's how you improve. And it doesn't mean that every critical review is accurate, but I try with an open mind to be able to, to hear what people have to say and try to improve myself. That's how you make whatever you're doing better. It's not the easiest thing in the world, but it's the way that you do make things better. So I had already gone through that process because I had been doing this for like close to a decade. I had taught many times. I had taught in many places throughout the world for many different organizations. So that, that process of, of thinking through the material and try to, trying to understand what, how do you sequence it? How do you piece everything together? How are you going to get a broad picture? How are you going to create that movement where you start broad, come narrow, broaden out again? It, all of that process I had gone through not that I can't continue to improve I always can but I'd gone through a significant amount of it so when it came to writing it was very natural it was just very natural for me to be able to put those materials on paper it was really quick and then I think the other thing is you know like I think I mentioned earlier as we were speaking that you got to know yourself in any in any endeavor and I know I'm not a writer I just know that historically so I think the decision to go outline I'm a storyteller that, that I do know, but I'm not a writer. So the decision to go outline and, and rely on me as a storyteller rather than me as an author, I think that also made things easier for me. Because when you're in an outline, you just the, the less you say, the less mistakes you can make. Now, again, you put yourself out there because as a storyteller, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. It's so hard to speak without making mistakes. And I make tons and tons of them. And I know where they are in the videos and people often point them out as well. But for me, it's just my personality. It's easier for me to be able to tell you a story than write you a story. So I relied on that as well.
2: So through all of your experiences, obviously pursuing medical education was a process more so than I think any singular moment as you've been kind of telling us in in your stories from your own experiences. But you've eventually become one of the leading educators in medicine, whether that be through Pathoma or even at your time at UChicago. This is a little bit of an aside, but I know that Emily and I both were a little bit starstruck when you agreed to do the podcast with us because you're one of our educators as well, whether you know it or not. So one of our questions that we were wondering is, do some of the students at UChicago ever get starstruck like we did when you teach or while seeing you in the halls?
1: I don't know. I I don't know. That's a good question. I'm a relatively private person. I'm, I'm very introverted. I don't. I don't live in the world, I don't live in the same world that most people do, just as a funny example. I don't own a cell phone. So, you know, I, I I just don't so I don't know what goes on out there. I I try to do what I I do what I I do what I do and I try to do it in a way that I can feel like I'm making a contribution and, and be beneficial to others. I mean, that's really I think I got that at the University of Chicago starting as an undergrad. I didn't enter there. Uh, maybe the best model of a university of chicago student but i think that process of being an undergrad there really created that within me and i think then having gone to med school there was 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 very similar and i'm sure each medical school and each undergrad has its own strengths and weaknesses but for me i i don't know i never really thought about it that way i still don't really think about it that way i feel like just you know just i, I don't know i don't I I don't get into that. It's hard for me to relate.
2: (laughs) Well, I will say that your name is very well known within the medical school uh, (laughs) realm, whether you are aware of it or. No, that
1: that I appreciate. (laughs) Yeah, that I appreciate. I mean, I've gone to, I I go give talks and it's, I I see it's a rock concert when I'm there, (laughs) right? It's I I get that, but I don't relate to it. It, It's hard for me to relate to it. I kind of just prefer to just quietly do my thing and, I, I remember like um, I used to think at one point, like early, earlier, early on in my career, like, you know, why would anybody ever want to just go off grid? Mm. You know, like, why, why would you, why would, and I, I used to like see drive by these RV places and wonder like who really would just get an RV and disappear. And actually, I don't now. I relate to that. Uh, I actually don't wouldn't mind being off grid for like a year or two. And I, it's just, it's just me. It's so uh, it's hard for me to relate. I understand it i see it's there i bump into people at airports and on streets and in downtowns and in different countries and and in many many places i've bumped into people and it's used all over the world and uh you know so i i do see that people appreciate it and, and it's actually for me very humbling and it's just an honor to know that i can make a contribution so broadly and to so many people's lives and and in the end it's about the patience so to know that you know, I know we talked about in the beginning how, you know, it's so beneficial for USMLE, but honest, honestly, that's not my primary intent. It's a secondary derivative benefit. But just for me to know that students are able to understand the material in a broad way and then be able to relate that and share it with the in the service of their patients is really what for me is the greatest achievement, not that people see me as a B or C.
2: Awesome. Well, coming back from that aside, I think a personal question that I wanted to ask for myself when I'm watching Pathoma is that as a medical student like myself, it's often daunting to see just a drastic difference in abilities and knowledge between attending such as yourself and medical students who, like you said, are going through this like a kindergartner. So while watching your Pathoma videos, you demonstrate such a mastery over pathology and just have a deep and vast understanding of the ever-changing content of medicine. So what advice would you have for medical students like myself who sometimes worry that they'll never reach that point, that that's so unattainable and that uh, an attending's level of knowledge seems just so far away?
1: All you have to do if we had it was to just review a video of me when I was a second-year med student. (laughs) And you would see anything is possible. I just was not the model student. I I was not. I mean you you'd be thinking like hey this guy who's teaching us pathology must have mastered it from when he was in kindergarten. <laughs> and the answer is no. And by the way, it also even applies if you were to pull my high school transcript. I was I sometimes I think I should go back and pull my high school transcript. I was not that student. I was just not that student. I was I had my own characteristics which, you know, uh, I try to I try to plan my strengths and I try to defend myself against my own weaknesses. But Really, look. I would say, I would argue this that your look if if you, the question the way that you ask the question really looks at it from one dimension, which is the dimension of mastery at a at a set point in time. But I would argue that the the stronger vector is actually the vector of time, meaning time is what allows you to attain mastery, not the amount of effort you make at one point in time. So, so long as you remain thirsty or hungry, let's say, so long as you remain hungry across a career, you are going to achieve mastery. It's to me, I, I could literally take anybody and do it, do that with them. if They gave me time. So you have time on your side. The problem is we look at things. We look at life as a snapshot, you know, like, Hey, what did I do in this hour? What did I do in this day? What did I, where am I at this point? But you've got tons and tons, tons and tons of time ahead of you which, by the way, that was the whole idea behind pathoma, was to pare it down to create a simple system by which you could appreciate broad principles of disease, which you would build on over time. I wasn't trying to do everything. That's exactly the point, right? That's what made pathoma what it what it is, is that I wasn't trying to make another, you know, for example, Robbins, which is phenomenal. But it's Robbins. I don't you don't need another Robins you needed a very simple, uh, digestible set of materials that recognized where you were with some wisdom of where you would eventually be, right? So, so that, that was the whole idea. And my expectation isn't that you're going to uh, reach mastery by the end of second year. My expectation is that you're going to create a foundation of knowledge that's going to allow you to build for mastery over the next 40 years. And that's exactly what medicine's all about. You're going to forget some of the things that are not relevant to your practice, and you're going to deepen your knowledge and other things that are relevant. And eventually, you're going to become someone who's able to serve their patients in a as a contributor of a much broader system. All of medicines not on your shoulders. You're going to be one of many contributors to a, a big complex, which is called medicine.
0: Yeah, I think those are great perspectives to be reminded of because it's so daunting as a first year, second year, um, and then student in their clinical years um, about how much knowledge there is out there and how we're expected to know so much, whether it's, you know, for step one, for um, our patients on the floors. And it often feels like we must know everything in that moment. But as you, you know, keenly remind us, we can't be masters of everything all at once. You know, medicine is a lifelong commitment and um a lifelong journey of learning. So as much as we might feel pressured at times to to know everything, not only is it not uh realistic, it's also not even necessary because it's a lifelong um journey of learning and and something we'll do over time. So yeah, thank you for that great reminder.
1: Yeah, let me let me just uh, jump in here and just say one thing, which is that I know we're not going to have time to go into this. It's a whole nother world, but I would even argue that what's going to determine your ability as a physician is not necessarily the knowledge that you have. Mm. I don't think your challenge when you're 10 years into your career is going to be, hey, I I didn't learn something as a second year med student. I think your challenges are going to be how to maintain balance, how to maintain the commitment that you made the first day that you entered medical school. How to, always vow, how to always honor and, and treat with, uh, treat the patients with respect, how to not get burnt out and jaded, how to run the marathon instead of the race. And the marathon is not a knowledge marathon. It's actually a life marathon, which is about wellness, respect, honor, and all these other things, which unfortunately we don't get as exposed to in medical school. I just don't think that as a 10-year-out practicing physician, you're going to be struggling with the concepts of second-year medical school. I just doubt it. I've seen it. I'm talking from my own perspective and I've done this many, many times now. So I would argue that the challenge isn't even like, I know that as a second year med student, it's so much information being thrown at you that you see the challenge of medicine to be knowledge or information, but that's not the challenge of medicine. It won't be 10 years down the line. It's not going to be the challenge that you're facing. You're going to be, you're going to know where to look things up and you're going to know what you need to know to deal with your patients because it becomes routine. Rather, it's going to be the type of human being that you are and, and whether you remember the commitment that you made to the patients that you're dealing with and whether you can show the empathy and the time and the compassion that's necessary to be a physician and whether you could remember to live in a way that's balanced, that allows you to be able to maintain all the goals that you set for yourself the day that you entered med school. To me, that's the greater challenge. I know it's not it's outside of the realm of pathoma, but it's, it's, it's the true challenge.
0: Yeah, and I would I would argue this conversation and these, you know, concerns are as quote unquote high yield, as you know the knowledge um, that we're tasked with knowing. Because it's it's one thing you know to have to know all the material that we have to know and be able to diagnose and treat our patients. But the other challenge that you're describing, I think, is equally big and equally concerning, especially in you know, light of COVID these days and the continuously fragmented healthcare system, like the need to be ever, you know, true to ourselves and respectful of others and um, not burned out, I think is as as important as you're, as you're describing. So yeah, thank you for, you know, bringing up, you know, these ideas as well. So Dr. Sitar, um, Aaron and I wanted to ask you um, a bit more, um, personal questions now about um, your experiences with religion and religious studies. Um, I think that this might um, piggyback onto some thoughts you just shared, but regardless, we wanted yeah to switch gears a bit now, since we understand that you are an avid, avid educator of Islamic religious teachings um, and are even trained in the Islamic spirituality called if I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. So would you be able to explain to our listeners what your Islamic faith means to you and your students and how it contributes to your daily life and perhaps even your perspectives on medicine?
1: Sure. Uh, yeah. So I would say that, you know, my religion is a personal endeavor for myself, which basically allows me to be able to ground myself in some general principles about how I behave and how I make a contribution to the world around me. Um, I, uh, for me, I, I, you know, it's, it's my way of number one, maintaining perspective, uh, and number two, maintaining balance and number three, maintaining my overall wellness. So, uh, it informs what I do, but it's not, it, it, it I carry it personally. Uh, I mean, it's, it's exposed on me. If you're looking at me, you could you know, I'm, Uh, I I have like signs of my religion, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's my personal mechanism by which I ensure my, it's like a quality control measure upon me that that's how I, how I look at it. So it plays into everything that I do. And it's played into so many of the decisions that I've made throughout my career. For example, when I finished residency, well, let's take a step back. I told you, I took time away, right? I gave you the, the story of how I took time away. And um, I would argue that, and and I can say with certainty that that time I took away was more valuable than any other period of my entire life. Um, Because even though the world didn't understand why I wanted to be away at that time, it gave me a chance to reset and and see things from another perspective. Now, I spent that time really doing a lot of meditation and developing myself spiritually. And that's really my my focus, right? That's that if, if I had to pick one area in religion that I focus on, I've spent 20, 20, close to 30 years now, um, either training under, you know, spiritually elevated individuals, or um, trying to teach what I've learned. Um, and it's like a whole nother career, you know, which, I which I sort of have on the side. But um, for me, it It's what allows me to see things from, from in in perspective. And so that perspective eventually comes to manifest itself in many of the things that I do professionally. So for example, um, the fact that I took the time away to reset myself and reground myself eventually meant that that gave me the opportunity to come back and see medicine from a different perspective. Um, I can argue that the reason I'm able to look at medicine from such a bird's eye view is because I actually learned to do that spiritually, to ignore myself and to escape myself and look at everything from a bird's eye view. That's really the foundations of spirituality, which is, you know, you sort of delete yourself, but you see yourself as part of a greater whole. So uh, these things all inform what I've done. But again, I, I do it in a personal way. Uh, In addition, I'll just give you another example. When I finished residency, um, I had an option. I could go to a private practice position and I could practice and make a contribution to, um, I could make a contribution to my patients and I could really benefit the world that way. Or I could remain in an academic setting and it was going to require some additional work and some less pay and some sacrifice on behalf of my family, particularly in me as well. But in the end, You know, given my uh, spiritual background, I decided that it was more noble for me as an individual to to choose to stay in academics, which was really a big decision for me at that time, you know, honestly speaking. And that's informed what I've been able to do with my career, because obviously if I wasn't, if I didn't have the perspective that I had, I wouldn't be able to produce Pathoma. If I didn't choose to be in, in academics, I wouldn't have been able to produce Pathoma. And if I didn't have the balanced um, perspective and way of carrying myself, I probably wouldn't have been able to produce pathoma. And from another angle, I would even argue that even just, you know, me and the quote unquote calmness that may be present in my voice, which I, I get this comment all the time, like, oh, it was just so calming to hear you t- teach me about uh, lymphomas, because it's just your voice was just calming. And I would argue that that's not my voice. It's the voice of my teachers who put so much time into me to just spiritually develop me so that I could maintain that balance in the in a storm. I can still be fairly, I try to be fairly balanced. So uh, for me, it's, again, it's the foundation and the bedrock upon which I stand, which allows me to make a greater contribution to to all of the world that I'm surrounded by. And it, uh, maybe for you and for all of the listeners, I would just say that you have to find something I don't know what it will be, but you need to find something and you need to search for something that will allow you to be who you are. And I think we just spoke about it a few moments ago that your challenge is not knowledge. Yes, as a second year medical school student, your challenge is knowledge. Your challenge is going to be 10 years down the line when life becomes utterly complex. And now many of the amenities of life are made available to you. And you get challenged by how you balance your your own desires with yourself versus the needs of others. And you start thinking about how you're going to make contributions and whether we get caught up in our own lives or we continue to serve the lives in in the lives of others. These are the real challenges of life. And this is where the vast majority of us get lost. We lose who we were. We we lose why we started what we were going into. And this is a big challenge. This is a huge challenge, not not only facing uh, medicine, it's facing all of humanity. You know, we all start out as bright eyed, bushy tailed, well-intended individuals. But over time, you, you slowly fray at the edges and life challenges you. And if you can't, if you don't have a mechanism by which you're going to make decisions, you could easily, slowly, but surely drift away from your original intent. And so for me, my spirituality is a way that I get to reset. It puts me in the company of people who are enlightened and beyond me and will remind me of who I am and what I hope to achieve and what opportunity I've been given through what we call life. So, so that's me, right? And I I just would advise all of the listeners that you got to have something. What's your compass? You need a compass. Everyone needs a compass. Whether you surround yourself with wise family members, your parents, your mentors, other people have a system that allows you to make decisions in life. And allows you to see things for maybe not necessarily what you see them to be, but a bigger perspective. All of us need that. For me, it's my, it's my personal spiritual experience. And for each person, it will be what they find to be, what they seek and what they find it to be.
2: I think as a student and as somebody who might not have spirituality or religion in the context that you do or that others do, it's a little intimidating to hear and see what you've determined is necessary and what I think is necessary for a lot of students to have. So what advice might you have for students who might not have that structure of spirituality and religion to fall back upon, but still want to get that enlightenment and that uh, reflection and that mentorship from other people to be able to stay true to the person that they are?
1: Yeah, so uh, what I would say is, look, it, the benefit of being a student is that you're you're relatively untainted right? I mean, that's the beauty of being a student. You really haven't experienced the challenges of life. You've experienced the challenges of working hard, of knowledge, but you haven't experienced all the other challenges. Like, how are you going to manage relationships? Uh, How are you going to manage interactions? How are you going to maintain yourself over a long, lengthy marathon that you have to run, which is partly called medicine and partly called life? So I'm just arguing that every person needs to have a compass, and needs to seek out what their mechanism is, Th- this would be my advice. If you're just oblivious to it and you say, I don't need it, fine. Y- you could, you could theoretically end up where you want to be. And, you know, my hat's off to you if you're able to achieve that. Um, but I would argue that uh, it's just the way life challenges challenges us, that um, it's not that hard to lose sight of who we are. And what our intent was and what we hope to be. And so some way there needs to be a mirror that that we can look in. Now, if you've got the mirror of parents who you can, you know, usually a parent is not the best mentor because, you know, you don't want to hear from your parents what you're doing well or not doing well. But uh, parents, mentor, elders, friends, relatives, coworkers, you've got to create a, um, a network around you that allows you to maintain who you are your goals, what you're trying to achieve, and you got to be true to yourself and you got to look in the mirror and you got to ask, am I fulfilled? And if the answer is yes, then you're probably not looking for anything more, right? Because the one who looks is the one who needs. So, but if you, if, if, the, if the answer to that question is, no, I'm not, I can see myself lacking an ABC, or I can see myself not where I, where I should be at this point in my life, then I would argue it's time to search.
2: And I think it's just really important to hear that because when I was listening to you, I became a little envious that you had some structured support system within your religion. And as somebody who doesn't have that, I really wanted to reflect and see how there are ways that I could find it. But even when you're talking, I think that it showed me that there are a lot of forms that that can take. Like for me, I realized that I have best friends who will smack me in the head when I do something that they say, "Oh, this is not you." Like, you know, who know me more better than I do at times. And so, um, it just reminded me that this type of support and this type of mentorship and reminders and staying true to yourself can take the form of a lot of different people and a lot of different things.
1: Yeah, and by the way, I would just tell you that in for, in my life it doesn't mean that I uh, you know, I don't have any other outlets. I can tell you that I'm interacting with people um, in so many different domains and, and I take benefit from, from all of them. Just as an example, you know, if I had to argue like who is on the list of my top mentors today, one of them is going to be the, my, my, my head of surgical pathology at the University of Chicago. Um, he's not a religious advisor, but um, he's a balanced person who understands me, who understands what drives me and at times come into my life and tell me that I've made a mistake. And honestly, I appreciate that. Now, part of me is willing to accept and hear that because of my background and the time that I've spent working on myself. But I need that. I need those people in my life. I need that. And I need people that I can trust who will learn to put themselves in my shoes. Uh, just as an example, you know, we spoke earlier about my writing pathoma. When I was writing pathoma, uh, this mentor of mine who I just mentioned, came to me and said, after I finished, after I finished, came to me and said, I've been itching to tell you something for six months, but I didn't want to break you. But now that you're done, I want to tell you that you're never doing this again, because it's dangerous. You can push yourself to an extreme and you can crack. And if you crack, it's going to be difficult for you to carry yourself for the next 30 years. And honestly, he's 100% right. And I can feel today where my cracks are from that crazy nine month period. I can even feel it to this day that yes, I, there was damage that I took by, by, by pushing myself to that very, very extreme level. I, I, I would never do it again. I would never do it again. And I've learned from that time to, to say, no, I know you you guys both asked earlier, did, how come, you know, you, or did you ever consider just separating yourself and taking some time away? And yes, the next time I do this, I am going to take The next time I take on any project like this, I am going to take time away and I am going to do it in a much more balanced way. And the, the words of this, you know, mentor, who's still my boss, basically one of my bosses it's continue to ring in my ear. And I appreciate that he took the time and the concern and the care to be able to say that to me and he took the patience to not break me while i was doing it but rather just held it in for that however many months and then finally came to me at the end and said okay now that you're done i have the most important thing to say to you and i value that so again it, it takes many forms you got to keep people in your life um you got to build yourself you got to maintain your health and wellness and you got to keep people in your life who are going to be honest with you and tell you along the way Where you can improve and when you make a mistake.
0: That's amazing advice. While listening to you talk about the importance of relationships and mentors as a form of balance and also just um, in general, I think I came to think that you would be an amazing person to ask for your thoughts on how to effectively seek out a mentor to fill those roles in one's life. What advice do you have for? say medical student in particular, about how to go about finding those mentors and people that will, you know, give you critical feedback and encourage you to be the best version of yourself?
1: Well, every single person is not going to be the perfect mentor. Each one can play a different role, but I would argue that a mentor should be someone that that inspires you to be something greater than who you are. Um, a mentor should be someone that understands you so that they can advise you based on you and not themselves. A mentor should be someone who has the wisdom of experience and time on their on their side because life requires that you live it in order to understand it. I would argue that a mentor needs to be someone who's looking out for your best interest rather than their, rather than their own. Um, it needs to be someone that you can relate to and connect with so that there's a conduit of exchange so that trust, trust arises. So there's a lot of characteristics. I mean, I, you know, I don't have like a complete absolute list, nor do I claim to, to possess one, but, um, but these are just some of the features and it's something that, you know, you don't just knock on someone's door and say, Hey, can you be my mentor? I think you start interacting with them and you see who they are and what defines them. And As you work with them and you begin to develop trust with them, you're more likely to hand your heart or soul or however you wanna call it uh, over to them. So it's a process, it's a process. I I think the the greatest thing I can impress upon everyone is that you need these types of people in all aspects of life, because life's complicated. It's not only medicine, medicine's just a part of our life. Life is a complicated endeavor, which contains many interactions much of which you can never study to how, how to solve. And they come at the most, quote unquote, random ways. So you just need people. You need people in your life that you can trust and rely on and who will tell you, when, you when, you're, when you're off the course of what where you were hoping to head.
2: I just wanted to say thank you, Dr. Sitar, for your time and all your wisdom. We've heard your story, we've heard your experiences and we've heard your journey to the point that you're at now and I think a lot of medical students and pre med students who might be listening um are really appreciative for the wisdom that you've passed down and I think we'll benefit greatly from this conversation. So thank you again for your time. We really appreciate it.
1: No, it's my honor and pleasure to be with you here with you today and uh like I said, you know, it's really really just uh, so humbling for me to know that one anybody would even want to listen to what I have to say, but two that I've uh, been able to make a contribution to uh to the students lives and i hope that you know through that each of the students will be able to then go out and serve uh their patients and and really that's what it boils down to right we are we are here to serve humanity and um my purpose in producing pathoma you know sure it it alleviates a lot of stress on the first and second year med students and perhaps makes it easier to clear the hurdle of boards but all that's going to come and go. And in the end, it's going to be you and the patients and the service that you provide over over a lifetime. And so if I can even have a piece of that, then I've achieved my goal.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Sattar. We really appreciate hearing your high yield uh, story and perspectives. And yeah, I think Aaron and I speak for all of our listeners when we say that today you shared great inspiration to us regarding both being medical students and people of humanity at large. So I think with all that said, medical students, we can now all go back to studying Pathoma. (laughs) And um, thank you so much again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to MedicusPodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.